Greetings, my friend. When you mention the movies you hold near and dear, do other people run away from you really fast? Sometimes it seems as if I belong to a different world. We invite you to our cinematic science lab in the Mountains of Madness. A rest stop for those who like their films with double extra cheese. The Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat. What kind of place is this? It's a safe haven from summer blockbusters. A refuge from the reboots, remakes, and regurgitations of Hollywood. But be careful. Once you've stepped into this dimension of demented directors, you may not want to step back out. Don't try to escape your cat. There is no way out of here. Because all you of Earth are idiots. And now, your guide to this episode's journey through the junkyard of Hollywood. Professor Stanton Gearhart. Hello, and welcome to my humble laboratory here in the Mountains of Madness. Madness, in this case, being southwestern Pennsylvania. I am your partially mechanized Master of Ceremonies, Professor Stanton Gearhart, and this is the Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat, where you can take shelter from the multi-million dollar mediocrities of modern Hollywood and explore the bizarre, obscure, and downright cheesy films of both past and present, the films that entertain in ways their creator never intended. As this is the inaugural episode of the podcast, I'm going to talk a little about myself and why I'm doing this, as well as what you can come to expect from the show. Clockwork Cardiac is an online handle that I use quite often, and it has its roots in some surgical procedures I've had done in years past. Long story short, you're listening to a bona fide cyborg. I have a defibrillator pacemaker and a mechanical heart valve in my chest, and sometimes the microphone might actually pick up the sound of the valve clicking like a, or ticking, that is, like a clock. Hence the term clockwork cardiac. I've probably over-explained it already. And uh, if it's ticking a bit fast, well, I'm excited. This is the first episode of the podcast, so I'm hoping everything goes right. Anyway, I grew up enjoying science fiction and monster movies. And as a teenager, I became addicted to bad movies through the gateway drug of many a bad movie connoisseur, a little show called Mystery Science Theater 3000. I still love it, but I came to realize after a while that some of these movies that were featured on the show were actually quite capable of making their own gravy. And since then, I've sought out those films. In my collection, I have classics of Cold War-era sci-fi, bizarre, foreign-made monster movies, the work of such low-budget legends as Roger Corman, William Castle, and Ed Wood, um, and so on and so forth. Now, a lot of terms are bandied about for this kind of cinema. A good many people call these B-movies, which is a throwback to the old studio system, and it's actually a term that merits a little more of an explanation, because I've heard so many people say how they love quote-unquote B-movies, and yet so many of these don't really know where the term came from. You see, back uh, many decades ago, the big studios, Paramount, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and so on, owned the theaters that their films were shown in, and so naturally they could tell the theaters exactly what they wanted to show. Double features were made up of what were called A-movies, which were the big-budget show pieces that had all the stars, and then the B-movies, which were lower-budget and specifically designed to fill out the double bill and each studio had its own 
B-level production unit that specialized in quickly making films that could be paired up with the A pictures for double features. That all changed in 1948, when the Supreme Court made an antitrust ruling that came to be known as the Paramount Decree. That pretty much forced the studios to sell off their theaters, taking away the power that these studios had at one time to dictate what the theater showed. In response to this, the studios basically shut down their B-movie production units and focused on making fewer high-quality films that they could shop around then to the theater chains, which were now independent. They could show anything they wanted. But smaller theaters and the drive-ins that were becoming popular at that point needed inexpensive product to keep their customers coming in. And so studios began making movies, or, or studios were started, such as American International Pictures, or AIP, and they started to really crank out these cheaply made but entertaining films that were once the domain of the B-movie departments of the big studios. So B-movie basically lost its original formal meaning as a second-tier major studio film and came to denote any low-budget film. Now, sometimes I might use this term, but mostly I like to use the term bad movie, because that's exactly what these films are. Poorly acted, incompetently shot and directed, with plots full of holes and special effects courtesy, basically, of the, whatever change was in the filmmaker's pocket at the time, it seems. But many of these films, in spite of all this, are still entertaining. They achieve a level of artistic merit that their creators never aimed for, and those are the bad movies I love. Those are the movies that I consider to be so bad that they're good. On the other hand, a bad, bad movie has all of those same ingredients, but the mix is all wrong. Instead of entertaining you, they take away typically 60 to 90 minutes of your life that you'll never get back. And I'll be talking about movies of both kinds on this show, because just as in life, you have to take the bad with the good. You may not always agree with my judgment on a film, but I don't expect you to. The question of which films are so bad they're good and which films are just plain bad all around is very subjective, and everyone's entitled to their opinion. I'm just sharing mine with you. And sometimes I may talk about a movie that I like, but isn't necessarily a bad movie by any definition. Maybe it's a movie that ended up inspiring a number of bad but entertaining imitations, or a film that ended up being the prototype for a whole genre, such as Fritz Lang's uh, silent movie Metropolis from 1927 that started the, sci the uh, science fiction genre as we know it today. So while bad movies are this show's bread and butter, don't be surprised if I make a few detours from time to time. I may also branch off into TV programs, film serials, and so on. Ah, excuse me, just a little water here. A little bit about the format of the show. Basically, the way the show is going to be laid out, now this is all open to amendment, it all depends on what works and what doesn't work once I've made a few, but there's going to be a summary of the featured movie's plot, followed by information about the film's history, then my own analysis of the film, what I liked and what I didn't like, and finally, where you can buy or view the film today. And this is a format that I may go off script from sometimes, it depends. Hopefully at some point I'd like to have guests on this show, and at that point it may be more of a just a straight-up discussion format. We'll see. 
This program will also uh, be work safe. I'm not going to be using profanity. I know a lot of podcasters like the freedom that podcasting gives them to say what they want and use whatever swear words they do. Uh, That's just not how I roll. And most of the films I intend on reviewing would fit into the equivalent of a PG-13 rating or below. Mostly I intend on doing sci-fi, classic horror, suspense. I think those genres will provide plenty of grist for my mill. Really, I'm going to target the films that I think pretty much anyone with a taste for cheesy movies can enjoy. How often will this show be updated? I'm going to shoot for bi-weekly. It might start out on a monthly format. Really, it's going to be when I get around to it. I have a very busy life outside of the lab, so it's going to depend whenever I have the time to uh, set aside to uh, record the show. And... As far as the length of the episodes go, it's going to depend on the movie and how much I have to say about it. I'd like to shoot for between half an hour and an hour. I don't really think anybody's going to want to listen to me flap my jaws any longer than that about a movie. But uh, again, we'll see. One thing to be aware of about this show is that it is not a spoiler-free zone. The movies that I'm going to be reviewing are going to be decades old for the most part. There are going to be some newer films, but for the most part, we're talking the 50s, the 60s, so I'm going off the assumption that most people have seen these movies already. If it's a film that might be a little more obscure, then I might withhold some information, but don't expect that from me on a regular basis. There is also not going to be any kind of rating system on this show. Some people like to give movies letter grades, With me, either I like it and I recommend it, or I don't. I will also do my best to fact-check every review I do. I've visited too many movie review websites where the reviewers were either too gullible or too lazy to verify the facts about the making of these movies and just rolled with whatever myth was prevailing at the time, such as uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space it's been perpetuated that the flying saucers in that movie were hubcaps or pie plates. I'm here to tell you, no, they were not. But we'll get into what they actually were in my review of Plan 9, which will be in a later episode. I'll be consulting sources such as the Internet Movie Database and Wikipedia, not the most reliable sources, so I'm not going to rely on them completely. Uh, I have a number of books on movies in my own library, such as Bill Warren's Keep Watching the Skies, which is an encyclopedia of 50 sci-fi that is massive in both its content and also its size. Seriously, this book weighs about 20 pounds. Um, other books such uh, are the great Michael Weldon's Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film, the Golden Turkey Awards and the Son of Golden Turkey Awards by Michael and Harry Medved, and many other reference works. Point being, I'm going to do my best to do my homework on the movies that I talk about here. Well, I've yacked enough about myself and the mo- and the uh, show, and this isn't going to be a regular portion. We're just going to get right into the movie now, light the candle as it were, and inaugurate this podcast with a film that movie guide guru Leonard Malton calls one of the genuine legends of Hollywood, and it's one of my absolute favorite bad movies. While it might be overshadowed by higher-profile schlock films like Plan 9 from Outer Space, This film is still definitely in the same league. 
a 62-minute stink bomb from 1953 directed by Phil Tucker called Robot Monster. It's also known in some markets by the titles Monster from Mars and Monsters from the Moon, although, as we'll find later on, these titles really don't make any sense. So let's start off by uh, playing the audio from the trailer to give you a little bit of feel for the movie. mission, death for all humans. What astounding technical developments are being made to protect mankind? Robot Monster brings you an actual preview of the devastating forces of our future. Unsuspected revelations of incredible horrors that will terrify you with their brutal reality. There is no escape from me. Very well. I will recalculate. Your death will be indescribable. Fool humans, there is no escape. The trailer actually makes the movie sound a lot better than it really looks. So we'll dive right into the plot of the film. We meet a couple of uh, young children, little Johnny and his sister Carla, a typical annoying shrill 1950s kids, and they're playing a game of spacemen and aliens, although Carla would rather be playing house. In the progress of uh, their play, they come across a couple of archaeologists working on some cave paintings. To be specific, they're chipping them out of the cave wall to take them to a museum so they can be studied. Now, if you want to stop me right there and ask the question, well, aren't they doing more harm than good to a valuable historical site by doing that? Congratulations, you've just given more thought to this film than the screenwriter did. Anyway... One of the archaeologists, named Roy, he's uh, your typical hunky 50s matinee idol looking dude. The other one, the professor, looks and sounds like a captured German rocket scientist, right down to the monocle hanging from his neck. Johnny's mother and his considerably older sister, Alice, arrive on the scene and yell at Johnny and Carla for wandering off, and then they're introduced to the archaeologists. They then leave the men to their work and have a picnic in quite possibly the least hospitable place you could imagine, a rock-strewn section of Bronson Canyon, which was the location of choice for many a low-budget flick of that era, I might add. It's uh, an area that makes the surface of the moon look like Cancun, the last place you'd expect to have a picnic. Anyway, after the picnic, they all take a nap, except for Johnny, who decides to wander off to the cave again. Then things start to get a little round random. Let me start that over again. Things start to get a little random. A storm kicks up. 
There's a flash of lightning, and Johnny falls down for no apparent reason. Maybe he was supposed to trip and fall, but it looks like he's just down. And this is where things get even more random. The, sh the film basically shifts gears from banal to bonkers and drops a brick on the gas pedal. There's a bright flash, and the next thing we see are two lizards. It looks like maybe a Gila monster and a baby alligator or a caiman, something like that, with a fin glued to its back. And they're wrestling and tossing one another around on a miniature set. And that's mixed in with stop-motion dinosaur footage that's obviously been stolen from another film. So, at this point, I'm imagining most of the audience is scratching their heads a bit. After that nonsense, though, we finally get to meet the title character, also known as Roman Extension XJ2. This character is crowned by the book The Golden Turkey Awards as the most ridiculous monster in screen history, and I agree with that judgment wholeheartedly. If you look at this monster and don't laugh, there is something wrong with you. Imagine, if you will, a really tall, rotund, obese fellow in a gorilla suit. Got that mental picture? Okay. Now, take the mask off the gorilla suit, put a sheer stocking over the guy's head, and top the whole mess off with a shoddy-looking replica of a diving helmet with TV antenna that stick out at 45-degree angles. That, my friends, is Roman. But it gets better. Roman from the planet of the same name, he's not from Mars, he's not from the moon, he's from the planet Roman, lives in a cave with no furniture but some World War II surplus radio equipment piled on a table fresh from the thrift shop, a view screen that he uses to talk to his boss, the great guidance Roman, and his very own, and I'm quoting this directly from the credits in the movie, automatic billion bubble machine by N.A. Fisher Chemical Products Incorporated. Yeah. Roman's main purpose in life is to kill humans, or as they're called in the movie, humans, get yelled at by his boss, mope around Bronson Canyon, and make gestures that have nothing to do with what he's saying. What we're supposed to believe is that he is an alien invader that has wiped out the entire population of Earth with his calcinator death ray, which essentially was a pulsing photonegative effect with some zappy sound effects added. You heard it in the trailer. Only eight souls on the Earth, and an undisclosed number of soldiers in an orbiting space platform have survived this attack. Six of the Earthbound survivors are the people we met at the beginning of the film, Except, uh, it's really weird. Except now, um, they live in a bombed-out house. Or to be more accurate, the completely exposed cellar of a bombed-out house. And Johnny's mom has been married to the German guy who has changed professions from archaeologist to biochemist for over 20 years. And Alice and Roy are both brilliant scientists as well, and yet nobody is aged. Or maybe this is meant to be a parallel timeline. In any case, you just basically have to go with it. The German has rigged up an electric fence to mask them from Roman's scanners, and the super-duper serum he and Roy have developed protect them from his death rays. Very convenient, I'd say. Anyway, the bulk of the film is basically Roman moping about his cave looking for humans to kill, or humans, and getting yelled at by his boss. He destroys the rocket ship that the other two humans tried to use to make a break for the space platform, 
and then he destroys the space platform itself in quite possibly the worst special effects shot in human history. But we'll get to that a little bit later. In the meantime, in the process of threatening the remaining survivors, Roman discovers women, namely Alice, who is quite attractive to him, and she throws a big monkey wrench into his plans. One of the most entertaining parts of this film is watching Roman's brain short-circuit over the dilemma that he's suddenly impaled upon. The Great Guidance wants him to kill all of the humans, including Alice, but he wants Alice all to himself, but he doesn't understand why. And then Alice complicates matters by getting married to Roy. And actually, the scene where the German scientist conducts an impromptu wedding ceremony is a genuinely heartwarming scene, a bit of a surprise in the midst of all the craziness of this movie. Anyway, Roman is reduced to a blubbering mess, spouting off such dialogue as, I cannot, yet I must. How do you calculate that? At what point on the graph do must and cannot meet? Yet I must, but I cannot. I can't do it justice, but it's hilarious when you hear it in the movie. When Roy and Alice leave the cellar for their honeymoon, Roman makes his move. He throws Roy off a cliff and carries Alice back to the cave. She screams and flails a little, but doesn't put up as much of a fight as one would expect. I suspect that this was more for practical reasons than anything else. Uh, it's very likely that those big Roman helmets were the most expensive props in the whole production, and it wouldn't do to damage one of them with no replacements available. Anyway, once they're back to the cave, in a scene that boomerangs from disturbing to hilarious to downright baffling, Roman tries to put the moves on Alice. And then suddenly everybody starts calling him on the view screen. And his body language here is hilarious. He's, you know, shuttling back and forth, looking at Alice, looking at the view screen. It's just like he's saying, not now! It's like something out of Benny Hill. First, Alice's parents call. They want to give themselves up which is really a ploy just to lure him out so that they can rescue Alice. Then the Great Guidance calls, wanting to know why he hasn't killed her yet. So, finally, Roman gets back to work. Then little Johnny comes up to draw Roman out of the cave, which works perfectly. They can rescue Alice, but he strangles Johnny in the meantime. Finally, the boss Roman gets sick of Roman's insubordination and kills him and the remaining humans by remote control. Which raises the question, if the Great Guidance had the power to do the job all along, why didn't he just do it instead of sending some flunky who falls to pieces at the concept of an opposite sex? Then the Great Guidance throws a tantrum, calls up or summons prehistoric reptiles to consume the rest of life on Earth, and then smashes the Earth right out of existence. And then we learn the horrifying truth. This whole story was all a dream. In a very Wizard of Oz-esque framing device, the whole bloody thing was a product of little Johnny's concussed brain. He comes to and all the people in the beginning of the film are back to normal. Or what passes for normal in a place where archaeologists chip cave paintings out of the wall. They all scamper off to dinner and live happily ever after. And then the camera goes over to the mouth of the cave, and three of the Great Guidance Romance walk out of the cave and come right at the audience, just for the giggles, I guess. The end.
The movie's just a little over an hour long, and I know it's taken me twice as long as that to sit down and figure out how to explain it to somebody. Anyway, now we're going to call class into session. For some film history and talk about the development of Robot Monster. The genesis of the movie came about when a screenwriter named Wyatt Ordung was approached by Phil Tucker and his wife about writing a sci-fi comedy called Googie Eyes. Ordung said he didn't do comedy, so they pitched the idea that would eventually become Robot Monster. The thrown-together nature of this production is described in the following quote uh, from Wyatt Ordung. That's just a weird name. I keep saying it, Wyatt Ordung. Anyway, he pops up in a few other films of the time. I believe he actually even uh, directed the very first film that Roger Corman produced. I can't think of the title offhand, but in any case, what Wyatt Ordung said about the production of Robot Monster was, and I quote, Three days later, we filmed some 3D tests. I got the actors. Phil had a whistle around his neck. He couldn't direct. All he did was blow the whistle. Explains a lot, doesn't it? Even more telling is his description of the prototype Roman costume. He says that he wore, and once again I quote, a fire suit with a fishbowl on my head with TV rabbit ears, unquote. Just how low budget was Robot Monster? It depends upon who you ask, and the people behind the scenes on this film did not like each other. Al Zimbalis, the executive producer, pegs the cost at about 50000 Phil Tucker, on the other hand, claimed that it cost 16000 and his relationship with his producer was so strained that he actually had to stand in line and buy a ticket to see the finished movie. He wasn't given final cuts, so we can't really fault him entirely for the finished product. Wyatt Ordung, who claimed that Zimbalist had 60% of his script rewritten by a relative of his who had owed him some money, quotes a figure of $35,000. Looking at the finished product, I tend to lean toward Phil Tucker's number. This does not look like a $50,000 film, even in 1953 Any figure you look at, though, as far as the cost it took to produce it, the film still made money. It grossed about a million dollars at the box office. So somebody liked this film, and somebody made some money off of it. But both Ordung and Tucker claimed that they were never properly paid for their work, and that the film damaged their careers beyond repair. This drove Phil Tucker to try and fail to commit suicide when he couldn't find work in the movie business. Now, while connoisseurs of, slocks, of schlock cinema like the Medved Brothers acknowledged this film's so bad it's good status many, many years ago, it still sank into relative obscurity until Mystery Science Theater 3000 gave it a proper roasting during its first season on the Comedy Channel. We'll talk a little bit about its availability in this form later on. Now we're going to um, subject this film to analysis. In spite of its many flaws, I love this movie. I've seen the original uncut version, as well as the MST3K version, which probably, as I mentioned before, did a lot to raise the movie's profile overall. And it's fun to watch either way. It was also released in 3D in some theaters, which explains some of the craziness in the film. The bubbles probably looked really good in 3D, 
and I imagine the ending would have too whenever the uh, great guidance comes out of the cave. From what I've read, the film is actually an early example of 3D film technology done right. In either format, though, there is just so much to be entertained by from this film. These are the things that stood out to me. First off, Roman is one of the most laughable movie monsters in cinematic history. How did such a ridiculous creature come into existence? According to an interview with Phil Tucker, it happened something like this. Quote, I originally envisioned the monster as kind of a robot. I talked to several guys I knew who had robot suits, but it was just out of the way money-wise. I thought, okay, I know George Barrows. George's occupation was gorilla suit man. When they needed a gorilla in a picture, they called George because he owned his own suit and got like 40 bucks a day. I thought, I know George will work for me for nothing. I'll get a diving helmet, put it on him, and it'll work. Unquote. Sorry, Mr. Tucker, but no, it didn't. Not at all. What makes it all the funnier are the attempts to make Roman look menacing, as he trudges through Bronson Canyon looking like a big dopey galoot who was just victimized by a very confused costume designer. He's backed with bold, brassy, menacing music, like you heard in the trailer, but still ends up looking just like a big dopey galoot. But once you see Roman, you never forget him, that's for sure. The next thing that really makes this film stand out is just the abysmal acting. Not quite as bad as some of Ed Wood's crew, but close. For instance, the character of Alice is supposed to portray an intelligent, empowered female, but Claudia Barrett's performance is just so grating, just gets on your nerves so bad that you actually end up rooting for Roman to knock her off. And the kids in the film are your typical 50s irritating brat children, uh, Gregory Moffat and Pamela Paulson as Johnny and Carla respectively. I measure the uh, obnoxiousness of child actors from the 50s and 60s on a scale going from Ron Howard, at best Opie Taylor, to Larry Matthews, uh, Richie Petrie at the worst. And on a scale like that, these kids would rate a solid uh, Butch Patrick, I'd say. The older actors, um, John Mylong, who played the professor, Selena Royal, who played the mother, and George Nader, who played Roy, do a little bit better with their lines, but they have so little to work with that it's really a losing battle. In any case, though, Roman takes top honors once again when it comes to bad acting, even though we never actually see a face. The voice is dubbed in, or was dubbed in, that is, by a man named John Brown who had a decent radio announcer's voice that lends itself to electronic enhancement, which is what they did here. But George Barrows' hand gestures never quite match what is being said. John Brown does the voice for both the Earthbound Roman, extension XJ2, and the Great Guidance Roman, just using slightly different inflections to distinguish the two, although it's pretty obvious that the same actors are being used throughout. But 24 years later, we would see this done right in Star Wars, where David Prowse did the gesturing and James Earl Jones did the voice. And they created a sci-fi icon in a different direction. The next thing we'll look at are the visual effects. Now, while the ones that were created specifically for this film do have a certain earnestness to them, they also scream out an open admission that the effects budget for this film was probably blown entirely on the two Roman helmets, and the rest was just scrabbled together from dumpsters and second-hand shops. Uh, 
Uh, take, for instance, the automatic billion bubble machine. While, as I'd mentioned before, it likely made for a good 3D effect, it has no real in-story explanation uh, at all. I mean, did Roman like Lawrence Welk? Who knows? But considering the fact that it was featured prominently in the film's opening credits, I have a feeling that what happened here is that it was donated to the production in exchange for some free advertising. Watch the movie and you tell me who got the short end on that deal. The worst effects by far, though, are during the sequence where Roman destroys the rocket and the space platform. Now, the rocket is represented by stock footage of one of the Army's test firings of a captured German V-2 missile. That's not really unusual. That's par for the course for this period in history. The V-2 is basically the spaceship of choice for a low-budget sci-fi production. But the problem is with the space platform. When you think of a space station, what do you think of? The one that's in orbit right now, probably, all those modules linked together in the solar panels and such, or maybe one of the designs from the 50s and 60s that looked like a big spinning wheel out in orbit to simulate gravity, like what was featured in 2001 A Space Odyssey. I'll bet that what you don't think of is a plastic model jet with a sparkler shoved up its tailpipe, held on a stick in a dark smoky room, twirled around in a very irregular circle with no sign of the planet it's supposed to be orbiting. To add insult to injury, right before it blows up, you can clearly see the stick it's attached to and the hand that's holding the stick. If you have the DVD and can freeze the shot and advance it frame by frame, you can even see the watch on the guy's wrist. It actually has a twisted beauty to it. And what Phil Tucker couldn't afford to get for free, he stole. Footage from other films of the time, such as One Million B.C., Rocket Ship XM, Invasion USA, and a few others, I'm sure I'm forgetting, are thrown into this film, and it explains the wildly varying styles of effects that we see. Next up, the film's continuity, or lack thereof. When Roman gets Alice into the cave, he begins to tie her up, but hardly gets the rope around her whenever he gets a call in on the view screen. So he punches her unconscious and takes the call. After the call, the camera cuts back to Alice, and she has come to and is now completely tied up. Did she do it on her own? In her sleep? <laughs> the only part of this film that even approaches high quality is the score, thanks to Elmer Bernstein, who was an Oscar winner in later years. This is sort of the skeleton in his closet, I suppose. The music is far too good for the movie, but that sort of dissonance between the quality of the music and the lack of quality of the film just makes everything that much more surreal. And in spite of the insanity of the plotting and the dialogue and the it-was-all-a-dream-framing device that we see here, the real unintentional genius of Robot Monster may be that it was one of the darkest, most depressing sci-fi stories to come out of the 50s alien invasion boom. And yet, what do we do when we view it today? We point and laugh. I mean, think about it. The story proper starts with the near-total extermination of the human race, ends with the Earth being blown out of existence, and everything that happens in between is basically nothing but a delaying action. The humans never have a chance of defeating Roman. He strangles little kids for Pete's sake. How much darker can you get than that? 
But the darkness is wrapped up in so many layers of randomness and insanity that it's really not worth the effort to think it through. Now, where can you buy ro uh, not bro bro man? Uh, where can you buy robot monster today? Actually, you don't even really have to pay for it. Robot Monster is in the public domain, and so can be found on a number of those uh, cheap movie mega pack DVD sets where you get 50 movies for five bucks or something like that. And it's also downloadable uh, at archive.org, and uh, or and can also be viewed in streaming form on YouTube. But those are very low quality prints. The best version that I've seen on DVD is by Image Entertainment, and it's available either separately or bundled with Plan 9 from Outer Space. Individually, you can find it uh, typically on Amazon or eBay for around 10 bucks or so. I've also seen a two disc version floating around that has a 3D version with glasses included, but I haven't had a chance to check that one out, that one out myself. I'd really like to though. There is no Blu-ray of Robot Monster, and that brings up another thing. I don't own a Blu-ray player. I see no need to own a Blu-ray player. I have too much of a collection to start rebuilding it now. So maybe sometime in the future when I have the funds. But now is not that time. Anyway, back to Robot Monster. The uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 version from the show's first official season on the Comedy Channel floated around for years as a bootleg, which is the form that I have. You used to be able to get those on eBay, but those days are long gone. In 2010, Shout Factory made it available in the MST3K Volume 19 box set, which isn't cheap, but you can also stream it through Amazon for a few bucks, and I imagine it's also available at this point on Netflix. It wouldn't surprise me. It's actually nice to see this level of availability now, since one of the reasons it wasn't as widely known or as infamous as other films like Plan 9 is the fact that it just plain wasn't available. So, again, as I've said before, we have Mystery Science Theater 3000 to thank for this movie being so readily available now. So, in closing... All I have to really say is, if you haven't figured it out yet, when we come down to the question of whether or not you should see Robot Monster if you like cheesy movies, my answer is a resounding yes, absolutely. If you haven't seen it yet, go out and watch this movie. You won't regret it. The movie has no right to be as enjoyable as it really is, and yet all the horribly inept elements come together for a sublimely entertaining, bizarre little film. Phil Tucker's involvement with it and his perceived failure might have driven him to attempt suicide, but in a very real way, he succeeded in making a classic in its own right. Because, like it or not, once you've seen Robot Monster, you're not going to forget it anytime soon. Well, that's all we have for this episode. Um, running, uh, well, ran a little bit shorter than I expected it to. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to expound a little bit more on the next movie. Of course, I had all that introductory crap at the beginning to get through. You won't hear that next time, and hopefully I haven't made a total fiasco of this first episode, but um, if you like it, there will be more to come soon. So, I leave you just with the thought uh, that I got from a famous French film scholar that I read. Learn to go and see the worst films. They are in Sometimes, let me start that over again. How about tongue-tied?
learn to go and see the worst films. They are sometimes sublime. So, on that note, I end this first episode of the Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat, and hope to see you next time. Goodbye! Goodbye!